So I think that speculation that generates economic use cases is actually just fine, right? So if you have a gold rush to California and there's actually no gold, but the speculation leads to the creation of the railroads to connect infrastructure in the country, that's super okay. I'm Connor Svensson, founder of Web3 Labs and your host of the Web3 Innovators podcast, where you'll hear from those folk changing the face of finance and other industries with Web3 and blockchain technologies. Each week, I speak to a new guest who shares insights from their own journey with Web3, giving you a chance to learn about the challenges they've faced along the way and how it's impacting their industry right now and will in the future. If you enjoy this episode, please remember to subscribe, leave a five-star rating and review, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. My guest today is Lex Sokolin. He's a futurist and entrepreneur working on the next generation of financial services. He's the head economist and global fintech co-head at Consensus. Lex focuses on protocols, crypto, economics, digital assets, public and private blockchains and decentralized finance and autonomous organizations. He also publishes an excellent weekly newsletter on fintech and DeFi called the Fintech Blueprint, which I encourage you to check out. Lex, it's great to be speaking again. Connor, thank you so much for having me. So crypto, blockchain or Web3, what pulled you in? (laughs) It was not Bitcoin. I remember working in fintech. I had my own company at the time focusing on digital investing and digital wealth and passive investing, asset allocation, modern portfolio theory, you know, that kind of approach. Sort of the type of thing that's getting popular again after the crash where everyone's experienced some capital losses. And I was working on that startup and I remember maybe it was 2012 or 2014 and I had gone to a conference in San Francisco for fintech. And at one point a speaker said, who here owns Bitcoin? And something like 80% of the audience raised their hand. I felt so uncool. I had built my whole ego and identity around like, I know the thing. I know what's going on. I'm doing it. And of course, back then I wasn't. And in part, I wasn't as in love with the ideas, the sort of macroeconomic ideas of the collapse of the dollar and the weakness of central banking and the power structure discussions that are needed for the Bitcoin story because they're very like Bitcoin is not really like an entrepreneurship story. You can't do anything about it. You're just like from this mountain of digital scarcity comes a new gold, this one more sacred than the previous one. And, you know, so I ended up buying one Bitcoin for $250 on Coinbase and feeling, having a bunch of arguments with my wife about it, about money poorly spent. And that was that. And it wasn't until 2017, 2016, 2017, that I really got meaningfully pulled into the Web3 ecosystem. And it was the Ethereum ICO. And then the early ICOs that started, token offerings that started getting launched out of Ethereum. And at the time I was doing institutional research around fintech generally, but with some focus on platform shifts. So AI, blockchain, and mixed reality. And I was watching equity crowdfunding, which was sort of a failed story. Like there's nothing, it was Kickstarter and there was a lot of video games being built, but there wasn't very many ginormous companies being equity crowdfunded to disrupt the venture model. Meanwhile, 
on Ethereum, we had like three ICOs and then the next month it was 12 and then the next month it was like another 20 and then it was like 50 and then it was, and all of a sudden the numbers went from being, oh, it was 5 million was a big raise to 50 million to hundreds of millions to some really absurd and inappropriate numbers, like in the case of AOS or Telegram. And for me, it was just this moment of this computational platform that was anchored with the properties of digital assets and digital scarcity that Bitcoin brought to the table, but also came with the ability to be an entrepreneur. So it wasn't there to be held and admired and religiously praised as if it were a complicated, you know, Talmudic text. It was something you could just like take for yourself and build on. And that was very, very compelling because it allowed lots of people to try and be pioneers in a very foggy new space. And I'm kind of like a novelty junkie, but with a focus on finance technology. And so it was just, it was just a very powerful pull. So I'd say I've been pretty deeply involved since around 2017. And just based on how the industry went, kind of went between looking at token offerings and then looking at more enterprise digital asset STO stuff, and then more onto DeFi and the crypto native path. And I'd say over the last year, really spending a lot of time on crypto economics and taking that seriously. It's fascinating how you talk about it. Having come from looking at the fintech platform perspective and parallels in terms of what could be built there, plus the effect you get with networks like Ethereum. But from your own perspective, I think it's especially helpful to get this with a view of what you've seen happen in fintech already. What do you see are the biggest challenges with blockchain adoption versus what's been played out before? I guess I have a couple of comments at an industry level. I'm not sure they're... Maybe we can just double click on them after laying down the map. But I think that especially in a moment like right now where things are bad from a capital markets perspective. And things are bad, not just for people in crypto who lost money through fraud on an exchange. They're bad for people who are living regular lives and their electricity bill is spiking five times because of inflation and the war and supply chain issues. And that economic trouble doesn't compare in any way to the actual like physical danger that people are in Ukraine and so on. So I think at least it feels like right now is a moment where there's a lot of conflict things are going legitimately wrong. That's being amplified. There's a lot of stress in the air. Everyone expects things to be worse. Like consumer sentiment is still at a historic low. People expect inflation to go up and they expect employment to go down and they expect interest rates to go up. And so there's just a lot of tension, I think, in the narrative. And at a moment like that, it's really seductive to use a broad brush to describe things that have nuance and are, and are different. It's very tempting right now to say all crypto is bad because look at this guy who did this and he said these things, but this is how it actually, like, isn't blockchain supposed to save you from fraud? How did you end up in a situation where the thing you said you would not have with blockchain is exactly the thing that you have from this industry? And I think it's very lazy thinking to go that route. And unfortunately, I think there are a lot of industry adjacent players who are being opportunistic about kind of taking advantage of the situation to paint a story. So I think one of the biggest barriers is for us to create the fault lines and the differentiations between an economy that can be built on blockchain rails that 
has like intrinsic values that maybe the wrong word, but like has consumer surplus. Like, you know, when you go to the store and you buy a sandwich, you pay a little bit more for the sandwich than it costs to produce. And there's a profit like that's surplus that's being split between you being happy of having a sandwich and then whoever made the sandwich, you know, making a little bit of profit from giving you the service. And this is the glue that sort of holds commerce and economies together. And then finance amplifies that. So it gives lending to the sandwich shop and it gives you some credit to use a card and get rewards. And there's all sorts of stuff that kind of expand out of that. But at the heart of the economy is like the useful exchange of things from multiple parties. And so in Web3, in my view, like if we don't have that, then we are surely absolutely doomed. You know, so there needs to be because we have this economic architecture of digital scarcity and computation of software and all of this, like it is there for economic exchange and for digital ownership. And so there have to be things that are worth digitally owning and having commerce around. And I think that's one area of focus. And that area of focus includes all the stuff about trustlessness and permissionlessness and using open source to grow faster and using tokenomic incentives to reward the people that are using the protocols. End of the day, those are like, they should be economic arguments. And then separate and apart from that is a financial industry that grows out of an economy. And in some cases that is symbiotic, you know, so it helps the economy grow in developing countries. When people don't have access to credit, you'll say they're unbanked or they're underbanked. And it's like a tragedy that they can't get access to credit. But then when you have 2008 and you have lots of derivatives and all this overexposure, you say this economy is over-financialized, right? Like there's too many banks. And so there's a, there's a magic sort of size of real economic activity compared to the finance that grows out around it. And in crypto, we're way overdialed to the finance side. And so we've got the names that people respect or respected, which were Three Arrows Capital, FTX, BlockFi, Genesis, you know, Gemini, some of whom have gone bankrupt, some of whom have not. You know, it's the same thing as being obsessed with Wall Street in the 80s or with can't wait to go into private equity to do leverage buyouts. It's the same sort of obsession with a financial growth hack rather than figuring out how does something get built in a very delicate space under a lot of constraint. So it's not quite the answer, I think, to your question, but I, I think this distinction like, is my biggest worry. Number one, can we paint it? Will people believe it? And then number two, is there evidence of actual economic activity? And I think there is, but again, it's very fragile. So in that regard, it's finding the proper utility that moves beyond the speculation part for it all. But do you think that regulation will be beneficial for this broader adoption? There is an inevitability with, to more regulation, especially in the wake of recent events, because there is this lack of mainstream trust that has appeared. But do you think that that's going to be a key enabler or something else? Is regulation going to help legitimise it? Or do you think it's going to be the utility being proven that's going to have to be the key driver? Or do you think it's a combination of both? So I think that speculation that generates economic use cases is actually just fine, right? So if you have a gold rush to California and there's actually no gold, but the speculation leads to the creation of the railroads to connect infrastructure in the country, that's super okay, right? Because all of a sudden you've modernized your transportation infrastructure. I think in the case of Web3, 
to whatever extent it is foolish to create recursive financial loops that crash on themselves like Terra, if the sort of the venture motion of that leads to the creation of resilient open source computational infrastructure that does more work than what we can get out of our current high-tech providers in some particular way that we care about. And I think that way is digital ownership and self-sovereign identity, even though that feels awkward to say now, but you know, some version of identity and ownership and metaverse-like economy. So whatever is your third digital space, right? You have your, your home, then you have your office, and then you have a third space. And I think for many people, the third space isn't a Starbucks, it's a digital space that they curate for themselves. And so whatever commercial things happen to make that space more like culturally fulfilling for you. So decorations, avatars, whatever. I think that the point to say is if the speculation to chase return drives like legitimate commercial activity of things that people want to own and then creates this infrastructure, then end of the day, that's productive. If the speculation is completely self-referential, like who can be the first to offer 100 times leverage on some perpetual that end of the day is meaningless in a zero-sum game against the retail investor, then I don't think that gets you anywhere. I think regulation's not really able to, in my view, spur real innovation. It's not like if we had bounds on the financial activity around crypto that in the separate and distinct sphere of technological and economic innovation, you would have like entrepreneurs building lots of good stuff. No, you you would have constraints around the bad actors on the financial side. And I think that's important and very useful and prevents calamity. And I think the the negative externalities of the calamity are very destructive for for that separate sphere of people trying to build on the ground. So maybe in that way, it would be helpful. But I think more helpful from a regulatory perspective wouldn't be like, I think there's the basics of, hey, let's let's make sure that <laughs> it's, it's painful to say, but like customer deposits aren't your plaything, you know, separate prop trading from banking, like these all should absolutely apply. Don't bundle brokerages and exchanges. So I think all that makes sense and, and should exist. But I think it's the other pain points that people experience in crypto, right? So access to a bank account for crypto companies, the ability to convert tokens into cash so that employees that get paid into tokens can live their physical life and have like an actual experience. Figuring out health insurance and DAOs. How do people contribute to DAOs full-time, but then are covered from a medical perspective? I think not having a Bitcoin ETF, right? Like I think a lot of the regulatory decisions should be unblocked rather than Yes, they can be prescriptive about particular sort of financial games and how to make sure that those don't blow up. But I think it's figuring out and taking action on how to help crypto businesses operate and how to remove barriers that prevent those businesses from having functional operations. So it's more about having these seamless rails in place so that people can engage with the technology and the various use cases rather than regulation being a key enabler as such. Yeah, I think end of the day, it's the gardening analogy. So maybe sovereign is the garden in which your stuff grows. And so you can adjust the how receptive the soil is. And I think you can make it so receptive that it's full of weeds, like in the Bahamas, or you can make it so unreceptive that it's a desert and there's nothing going on. And I think taking that ecosystem point of view is quite different than most regulatory mandates, which are very narrowly focused on particular breaches of the public trust. 
I think there are some jurisdictions which are more forward thinking or more holistic thinking, principles focused. And then there are some jurisdictions which are not principles focused at all that are just rule focused. And well, if it's in the law, then we enforce it in these particular ways and the outcomes don't really matter. Absolutely. So more broadly, with these companies that haven't really gone deep with respect to DLT or blockchain, or just thinking about where they should be making use of it, especially if you're speaking to a bank or a fintech or something like that, what in your view are the arguments for where they should be using it and where they shouldn't be? Oh, I've floated away a little bit from trying to convince companies to re-architect their internal designs. I think that you can draw a line and you can say, is blockchain a cost saver for your company or is it a revenue generator? So if the cost saving argument is, hey, look, you've got 50 systems connected to your core banking or to your portfolio management system or your custody settlement system, whatever. Of these 50 systems, you can take these 10, you can cross them out. Instead, you can perform complicated surgery and install a blockchain-based ledger and then integrate things to your blockchain-based ledger. And then the company is like, well, we actually need the, these other things. So we're not going to change that. We'll just add DLT as system number 51. And then also we don't really want to put anything on the DLT because we don't trust it. So we're just going to send some messages into it. And, and so it will be this expensive messaging layer. Meanwhile, this project is going on, you're going to have turnover and every single leader is going to attrite. And so the cost saving play is is really, I think, unsuccessful so far in being persuasive. You know, so save 20% on your fixed income market making or whatever. I don't think it's sufficiently. There's a lot of evidence that that is, is persuasive. I think there's some ecosystems. So you could do it at a level of an ecosystem. So if you look at like Apollo or KKR, the large private equity firms or some of the large hedge funds that are essentially price insensitive and are willing to continue investing into an ecosystem that they own because they own the underlying capital for the whole ecosystem. I think there's some cases where they just put all of their own float on top of their own system or a system that they essentially hold through equity ownership. But I think for most mid-sized to small to even kind of medium, large banks, it's cost savings story is tough. The other story is is revenue focused or growth focused. So, hey, look, you don't have to install anything into your systems and you don't have to change anything traditional that you don't want to. In fact, what you can do is just add one more product to your Swiss Army knife of products that you have. And so you go from a manufacturing story I make financial product. I have these systems. This is my factory. I'm going to swap out this old robot for this new robot to a distribution story, which is, hey, I've got lots of touch points with my customers. I give them equities. I give them fixed income now that I also give them crypto. And the crypto that I give them has to sit on different rails because it's a new asset class. And so I'm just adding a new asset class. And this story is much or was much easier before the collapse because it was very obviously not reliant on blowing up the tech stack that's already in place because it's just an adjacent product. And from a business perspective, it was very attractive because you're going after revenue. You're not trying to like pay a large upfront fixed cost in order to maybe have some cost savings, maybe sometime in the future. And so I think adding DeFi financial instruments or particular crypto holdings 
and giving people the ability to transact into them, like if you're Fidelity or BlackRock or whatever, I think that's a much easier sell, right? And if BNY Mellon's your custodian and you're a big broker, like this is not a hard thing to persuade people to do. All of that even combined though, I think misunderstands the level of impact that is gonna come out of the Web3 space. I think in the short term, people are just obsessed with how can we trade things around a bit? Whereas for the long-term view, the long-term view is the architecture of the web of the prior generation is missing some really key pieces. And this new architecture of the web in the shape of Web3 puts them back. What kind of internet can we build here? And that question is so far beyond of how do you trade stocks that I think in retrospect, it'll just be funny how narrow-minded we will have seemed. So using this as a jump off point to the next question, 10 years from now, how do you think that Web3 technology will have impacted the financial landscape? Yeah, so I'm going to steal an example from a recent conversation I had because it just kind of creates an intuition for me that I, I think makes sense. It's a story about DocuSign. If you remember 20 years ago, if you are signing a legal contract, what you're most likely doing is you've got printed out Word documents pieces of paper, and you're physically signing them. So you've got a wet signature. If it's a big deal, like a big transaction, an important one, maybe you're going into the lawyer's office. So there's witnesses. So people are witnessing your legal agreement. And then by the grace of God, swear on the Bible, sign the paper or whatever it is, right? Have a ceremony. And those that's like a binding, it feels real. And you come home, you've got your giant stack of papers, you put them into a, a drawer somewhere. Now, if I get a stack of papers, I feel unsafe. Like, I don't want any wet signatures from anyone. Like, it feels very ephemeral to me to have a physical legal contract. You know, what if I lose it? What if the other person pretends to lose it? Like, what's the actual evidence this ever happened? It can't be the memories of a bunch of people in suits. So from now, the only evidence that feels like secure is like, if there's a digital signature. So if there's a DocuSign process, I download the PDF, it's got an encrypted signature on it, and I feel secure that this has actually happened and it's backed up on a cloud drive. And so the digital signature has gone from being, I would never do it because that's not the real thing. The real thing is the physical signature to right now feeling like the physical signature is irrelevant. I need the digital signature to know that this is a real agreement. And this is all psychological. It's like using a credit card online. Is it safe or is it not safe? And so I think if you fast forward this, it's a little bit about how I feel about digital artifacts, like things on the internet that are mine. So right now there's lots of things on the internet that I have access to through like different websites, right? If I have maybe some sort of robot on Zapier that automates RSS feeds into content. I have some profiles in a different website. I have some commerce in a different website. And so there's lots and lots of different parts of me owned by different people. And then there are experiences or games in which I will own digital objects. You know, so like if I have Steam installed and it has a bunch of games on it with my progress, great. All of this, I think right now feels like, of course, I trust these websites to hold my credentials in the way that I want the lawyers to have been there for the deal. But what I really want, I think, is for the thing to actually be mine and be true. And I think we're, we're seeing that 
if somebody sends you something on chain and it's in your wallet, you have a, a feeling of like, this is mine. This is like permanently mine and I control it. It's a very guttural feeling and, and it empowering is maybe not the right word for it, but it feels natural. Like I think it works for our mind and like our biology. So I think that what's going to feel very natural in 10 or 15 years is that you will actually have digital ownership over all your stuff. And if it's not on chain and if you don't have it in your wallet, then you will feel like it's not real. Like in the same way that I wouldn't want that paper document today because it does me no good. I would just have to scan it and then confirm signatures anyway. I don't want random logins to random websites that I don't remember that I don't have control over. Like all my stuff I would want in the place where my stuff is. So if I have a robot in Zapier, I don't want it to live on the Zapier platform. I want to build it on Zapier and then I want to pull it out of there and put it in my wallet so that when Zapier is dead as a company, my robot that I made there still works. And so there's lots of agents, lots of sort of changes that can follow through with that like that logic can extend to a lot of things, right? Like you need more computation, you need more scalability and all that, but it's a very different model of how the internet works. And I think a lot of it will be driven by how people think about what is theirs and what is not. So there's still a lot to be built to get there, but it's also what makes it so interesting too. And this idea of owning these digital assets properly would be a great place to be. If people want to keep abreast of what you're up to, where are you most active? What would you recommend they do? Absolutely. So I'm on uh, Twitter at Lex Sokolin, and then I'll be amiss if I don't tell you to download MetaMask at metamask.io. And then if you're interested in my newsletter, it's fintechblueprint.com. So check it out. Well, it's been awesome to chat today and we'll include links in the show notes for everything you've mentioned. But thank you so much, Lex, for making the time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. I have a quick favor to ask. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to it. Leave a five-star rating and review it. Even if it's just a few words, we'd love to hear from you, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Until next time.